Welcome to TCC Alive, a podcast of Tulare Community Church. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his clothes and said, he has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come here tonight to remember what your Son alone accomplished on our behalf. While we were powerless and separate from you, you made a way. And Father, I pray that you would remove every veil over our hearts and our minds, that we might hear from you, that you might pour out your Spirit on us and transform us into your likeness. And if we have not yet declared Jesus as our high priest, I pray that we do that this evening. All this I pray in the name of our mediator, Jesus Christ. Amen. There's a Jewish custom, it's called sitting shiva. And when a person dies, the close relatives will go to the house of the deceased and they'll stay there in mourning for seven days. Shiva means seven. And this is a practice that's derived from bits of scripture. So when Jacob dies, his son Joseph is said to mourn for him for seven days. You catch a glimpse of this perhaps in the New Testament with the account of Lazarus. So Jesus shows up at the tomb of Lazarus, and he's told that he's been in there for four days. The funeral was four days ago, but there's still clearly a formal grieving period that is being observed. In the book of Job... After Job's children die, it says that his friends gathered around him and they sat on the floor with him and for seven days said nothing. So part of the practice in modern Judaism is actually to have the close relatives sit low to the ground on low stools or low chairs or crates or sometimes just on the ground itself. And they'll take a bit of fabric and they'll cover over every mirror, veiling every mirror in the house. And they'll keep it like this for seven days. And they'll do no work. And they'll sit. And they'll remember. And they'll reflect and think about and contemplate a life and a death. 
Well, this evening we have an opportunity to sort of observe Shiva in our own way. We are coming to the Lord's house. We're taking time to sit and remember and think about and contemplate and ponder a life and a death. And the most important life and death to contemplate because it's a life and a death that addresses the fundamental problem of all of human history. So to start off, we read two passages of scripture, and I hope you noticed a connection there. So what we're setting up here is a, is a clash or a contrast of two high priests and two covenants and two tearings. So the first high priest that we have is Caiaphas. He's the official high priest at this time. He's believed to be a Levite of the tribe of Levi. He is a high priest in the order of Aaron, and he represents for us the Mosaic Covenant. So if we think back to our biblical studies, we'll remember that the role of high priest is pretty important because within the tabernacle or within the temple, there is a veil or a curtain, big, heavy, thick thing, and it separates the holy place from the most holy place, and only the high priest was ever allowed to go into the most holy place, and only once a year at that, on the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go beyond that curtain into the most holy place and offer a blood sacrifice of a bull and a goat to cover over the sins of the priests and the rest of the people. So the, the picture that that creates for us, right, is one man going beyond the veil into the presence of God, interceding on our behalf with a blood sacrifice to take away the sins. Pretty important job. Well, the other high priest that we have is Jesus of Nazareth. And he doesn't look much like a high priest. In fact, he doesn't look like a priest at all. He's not a Levite. He's not from the tribe of Levi. And that's a pretty big deal because according to the Mosaic law, only Levites are allowed to be priests. In fact, only Levites who have descended from Aaron are permitted to perform the sacrifices or to burn incense. Well, Jesus is not a Levite. He's from the tribe of Judah. He doesn't trace his ancestry to Aaron. He can trace it to King David. It gives him a claim to the throne. It makes him a king. But that doesn't make him a priest. And if Jesus is not a priest, well, then how can he intercede for us? Jesus is not a priest. How can he make atonement for us? How can we call him a high priest? Well, the answer is, Jesus is not a high priest of the Mosaic Covenant. No, Jesus is a high priest of a different covenant, of a new covenant, of a better covenant. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant... No place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, The days are coming, declares the Lord. And he's quoting here from the prophet Jeremiah. The days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. That's the Mosaic covenant. It won't be like that. Because they did not remain faithful to my covenant. And I turned away from them. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbors, say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness 
and will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. Okay. So before Jesus ever arrives on the scene, God declares through his prophet that I found fault with the people, that the Mosaic covenant is lacking, it's insufficient to meet your needs. And he promises, I'm going to institute a new covenant. Jesus shows up. And on the night of his betrayal, he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. He ushers in this new covenant and he takes his place as high priest of that covenant. A high priest, not in the order of Aaron, but in the order of Melchizedek. Who's Melchizedek? Think back to our biblical studies. Okay, Melchizedek's this sort of enigmatic figure. He was called the priest of God Most High, but he was also the king of Salem. So he's a king and a priest. Sound familiar? He's a king and a priest that predates Caiaphas. He's a king and a priest that predates Aaron. He's a king and a priest that predates Levi. You've got to go all the way back to Abraham to see this king and this priest. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says, continuing on. Chapter 7, verse 1. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. See, I told you. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Then also king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. He gave him a tithe. He gave him what is owed to a priest. Now, when it says that Melchizedek didn't have a genealogy, that, that's not to mean necessarily that Melchizedek didn't have a father or grandfather or great-grandfather, but it is certainly to mean that we have no record of it. And likewise, when it says without death, that's not to mean necessarily that Melchizedek didn't die a natural death as most men do. It is to say we don't have a record of it. He's a very mysterious figure, and it's really captured the imagination of a lot of the Jewish people. And you see this in their extra-biblical writings. So, for instance, in the second book of Enoch, they talk about Melchizedek as somebody who was whisked away up into heaven. He's regarded highly, these lofty terms in which they talk about him. And the author of Hebrews here is really playing into this. He's, he's making an argument from analogy. So just as Melchizedek has no genealogy, Jesus has no beginning that existed with the Father since before the creation of the world. And just as Melchizedek has no recorded death, Jesus is a high priest that lives forever. See, he's a, he's a high priest like that. Aaron has a genealogy. Because Aaron's a man. Worse than that, Aaron dies. We have a record of it. And his sons die too. And inevitably, the line of high priest falls to lesser men. Because it's a, it's a weak high priest. It's a, it's, it's a frail priesthood. Jesus is a greater high priest. Hebrews continues. Chapter 7, verse 11. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood... And indeed, the law given to the people established that priesthood. Why was there still need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. For when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. 
He of whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah. And in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what we have said is even more clear. If another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest, not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life, where it is declared you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, the former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless. For the law made nothing perfect. And a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. Oh, you see that contrast, right? Jesus is a greater high priest of a greater priesthood, of a greater covenant founded on greater promises. You think that perfection is going to come through Caiaphas? You think that the sacrifice of blood and goats is anything? Well, no, these are images. These are pictures for us to help us understand what Jesus ultimately accomplishes, right? These are shadows of things to come. The reality is found in Christ as our one true high priest who's actually able to go into the presence of God, who's actually able to intercede on our behalf, and whose blood sacrifice is sufficient to cover over our sins. Caiaphas is just a man, and the covenant that he offers us is lacking. Not because God was lacking, but because man could never live up to it. You know, in the Gospel of John, before Jesus is brought to Caiaphas, there's never sort of informal meeting of the chief priests. And they're questioning Jesus, and he gives an answer, and they smack him in the face. And they say, is that any way to talk to the high priest? And they're not talking about Caiaphas. They're talking about Annas. Bewildering. How can you have more than one high priest? That doesn't make any sense. Is John just sort of confused in his writing? Doesn't know what's going on? No, he knows what's going on. What's happening is this. Caiaphas is the current official high priest. Annas is a former high priest. Okay, so they're using the title as sort of high priest emeritus. Right? It's an honorary title that he's retaining. We do much the same thing. So it's not unusual for somebody to say, Mr. President, to somebody who hasn't been our president in over 20 years. It's kind of obnoxious that we do that, but we do that, and they did much of the same thing, right? But it's noteworthy, because if you're looking at the Mosaic Law, the high priest is really meant to be a lifetime appointment. So why weren't they doing that? Why were they failing to live up to even that? The reality was is that Rome was involved. The Roman officials had sway, and they could depose of high priests at will. And so this position of high priest isn't just a religious position. No, it's a political one with all of the negative connotations that that entails. Right, so only the well-off, high-society, affluent families could ever hope to serve as high priest. And they would jockey for the position. They would bid for it even so this line of high priests was corrupt Caiaphas puts on a good show though I think he actually probably believed that what he was doing was in the best interest of the people that he was rightly interceding on their behalf right self-righteous in his own mind he tears his clothes because he's super zealous for God tears his clothes because he's super zealous for God's law it's an empty tearing. It's a death sentence. 
the tearing that only leads to death. But Jesus, Jesus, our high priest, he, he lives a life of actual righteousness. He lives a life in perfect accordance with the law of Moses. And the tearing that he produces leads to life. Leads to communion and fellowship with God. Leads to restoration and redemption and salvation itself. Jesus is a great high priest, a greater high priest of a greater covenant. Listen to what the Apostle Paul has to say about the greatness of the glory of this new covenant that Jesus ushers in. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 13. We are not like Moses. Oh, and he means this in a positive way. Imagine that. We are not like Moses who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. What a contrast. We need to decide. We need to decide. What, what covenant are you clinging to? What, what high priest are you claiming? I know the answer to that seems really obvious, which one you should go with. For so many people, it's really not. There's so many people who are falling right in line with Caiaphas. I'm not talking about Orthodox Jews. No, I'm talking about people who are self-righteous in their own minds, living up to their own sort of arbitrary moral standard, tearing their own clothes and that sort of virtue signaling, because they're so righteous, don't you know? They deny Jesus. They have no need of Jesus or his cross because they're their own high priest. This evening is all about declaring to one another and to our own souls that we need Jesus, that we need his cross, that we need the work of this high priest. The cross doesn't make any other sense unless we need it. The crucifixion is nothing but grotesque unless we need it. Jesus suffers and dies on that cross precisely because we need it. He's willing to do that. So Jesus dies, and his disciples, they, they stay in Jerusalem, which is kind of interesting. I mean, their, their rabbi had just been killed. Their own lives could be in danger. In fact, that's what they believed. Why do they stick around? Why not get out of Dodge? You know, head for the hills. Get out of Jerusalem. There's a lot safer places to be right now. Why did they stay? There's probably a couple of answers to that. They're not mutually exclusive. But one of the reasons given is because the disciples would be sitting Shiva. Gathered all together in a house. Mourning. Grieving. Sitting low to the ground. Because of course they would be. Remembering, thinking about, contemplating this life and this death. Confused, angry, afraid. 
helpless in the face of death, powerless in the face of death, hopeless in the face of death. But before the seven days are even over, Jesus, our high priest, comes to them in their mourning, comes to them in their grieving, comes to them while they're hopeless in the face of death, while they're powerless in the face of death, while they're helpless in the face of death, as a conqueror of death, as the answer to every shiva ever observed. And he picks them up from their low position, raises them back onto their feet, and says, no more mourning. And he takes down every veil, every veil over their hearts, over their minds. And he teaches them the scripture. And he pours out his spirit on them to transform them so that the likeness that they see reflected back is Christ. This is the work of our high priest, and he is second to none. Jesus is the answer to Shiva. We can think about this in very triumphal ways, in very joyous ways, and we, we should, and we will. Easter's coming. But there's another Jewish tradition, only this one happens at the graveside. It's called Kriya. So when Jacob hears and believes that his son Joseph is dead, he tears his clothes. When David learns that his son has been killed, he rends his garments. When Job finds out that his children are no more, there's a tearing. Kriya. In modern Judaism, the close relative will tear a bit of their clothes at the funeral. Or sometimes they'll give them a little black ribbon that they can tear, a little bit of fabric. I was listening to a rabbi who was saying, oh, don't do that. I'm really inclined to agree with them. We have this tendency to try to sanitize death, to make it smaller than it is, make it manageable, make it palatable when it was never meant to be. No, no, don't do this small thing. Really, really tear it, really feel it, really experience it, because it's meant to be reflective of what death feels like. Right? It's this outward physical expression of a heart that's going through something, of, of pain, of anguish, and of angst and turmoil. Right? It's meant to mark something. It's meant to say something happened here and it matters. It's no small thing. It's this outward physical expression, this breaking, this ripping, this tearing is reflective of a heart that's being wrenched. And so when the son, the only son, the beloved son is hanging on that cross and he's crying out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cries his last breath and he dies. There is a tearing. The veil in the temple torn into like a father's clear. Like a father's clear. Let's not gloss over that. Let's not minimize that. Yeah, it's, it's joyous. It's triumphal for us. Yes, it is. Easter's coming. But it comes at a cost. You were bought at a price. It is through this pain that we are able to come into the presence of God. It's, it's, it's through this pain and this sacrifice that we have communion and fellowship and redemption and restoration and salvation. Because the iniquities of us all were put on our high priest. And it is by his wounds that we're healed.
Thanks for listening. If you want to know more about the ministries and mission of Tulare Community Church, visit us at tccalive.org.